0: Good morning, good to see you all here this morning, welcome to all of our members, and if you're visiting with us, we want to say welcome to you too. If you are visiting, we would love it if you took out one of those cards that you see in front of you, those blue and white cards with a little picture of our building on it, uh, and you could fill out the information on there and put it in the two little black boxes. There are two black boxes on the back of the auditorium that you can place those in. That's just so uh, we can express our appreciation for you being here with us. This morning. Uh, this morning, we're continuing our series on the home called Fortify the Home, and we're picking up with a part two lesson on a biblical vision of womanhood as we started last week. Uh, remember, as we've been discussing throughout this series, uh, that this vision is not the entirety of manhood or womanhood, but it's rather the heart of Womanhood, of manhood in the context of the home. And to fortify our homes, we must recover this vision. We must model it and we must promote it to our children and to the world around us. We don't need to be a people that are ashamed of this in any way, even though these things might be controversial or, or shy away from talking about them, because this vision, it's created by a loving God as is revealed in the Bible, who has the best interest of his creatures at heart. He's not a maniacal tyrant that wants to control and ruin your life. He's a loving God who has the best interest, has your best interests at heart. This vision, it's intended to be a deeply satisfying gift of grace not just for men or not just for women but for both women and men it's a recovery of the eden ideal for both men and women to flourish together in a way that was originally intended in the beginning it brings about human satisfaction and god's glorification so the church of the lord jesus christ needs to be dedicated to upholding this vision and promoting it to the world even the these things may be controversial. Now, with that being said, let's jump right in this morning. I have three ideas that hit at the heart of womanhood in the context of the home as we looked at three ideas concerning manhood, and the first is reverent submission, reverent submission. Take out your Bible with me and turn to the book of Genesis. Turn to the book of Genesis chapter 3, Let's look in verse 16, the latter half of verse 16 in Genesis chapter 3. Let's all of us take our minds back to Genesis chapter 3 for a moment when uh, man and woman, Adam and Eve, commit transgression, commit iniquity in the eyes of God. They sin. And God declares the consequences of sin's entrance into the world. Uh, Let's read part of what God proclaims to the woman. This is the second half of verse 16. It says in in, uh, the second half of verse 16, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, as we attempt to understand this, first of all, I believe it's helpful to note that this is a judgment oracle uttered against women and men. It's not a pronouncement of what was intended to happen or what should happen throughout the course of human history, but rather what will happen now that sin has entered the world. Before the fall of man, before sin entered the world, men and women existed together in peace, in harmony. There was no conflict. There was no questioning what was fair or what was unfair. The man, as presented in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, was the benevolent leader. And the woman was the indispensable companion helper, the azer, as we talked about last week. And both of them lived together in a state that, that was characterized by full and complete satisfaction in the presence of God. But now, because of sin, here's what will happen. Here's what God declares. God says, instead of there being peace, instead of there being harmony between men as the benevolent leader and women, and women as the exalted, indispensable helper... Which is the Garden of Eden ideal, there's now going to be conflict. There's now, because of sin, there's going to be animosity. There's now going to be hostility between men and women. There's going to be this power struggle between the two. Both of them will now look at the other with this spirit of not love and grace and harmony and peace and and, um, and unity and tranquility, but this spirit with envy, this spirit of jealousy and a perception that views the other as inferior and each of them will seek to elevate themselves over the other and subvert God's original structure and order that was created in the beginning. So, the curse is not that men are now the leaders and women are now in submission to men. That's not what the curse implies. The curse is a conflict, it's a hostility, it's an animosity between men as leader and women as submissive helper. And you can easily see that conflict all throughout the biblical story and even in, throughout human history and even in our own experience today. The very next chapter in Genesis chapter 4 starting in verse 23, Lamech Said to his wives, Adah and Zilhah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy sevenfold. Viewing women, there's this perception where he views women as almost property, um, as slaves. Uh, this, this disposition that's, um, that's communicated within the text, a distortion of what God has originally intended from the beginning. And we see that vision of fallen masculinity throughout history. Uh, Likewise, in Isaiah chapter 3, verse 12, we see an example of fallen femininity. My people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you, and they have swallowed up the course of your paths." women exalting themselves to the place of a man, to the, to, to the leadership position that was intended for men to uphold. We see a suppression of God's design, a subversion of God's design, because sin has entered into the world. But one of the beauties of the gospel... The gospel that we believe, that we promote, and we proclaim, the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus, through his atoning sacrifice, through his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus has solved this conflict that was originated in the fall of man. Jesus has solved the conflict that existed in the hearts of both men and women and has rescued this original beautiful design and roles of both men and women as, and has restored them in all of their beauty in all of their magnificence. Jesus has restored the Garden of Eden ideal for men and women. And through him, through his actions, through his behaviors, through his self-sacrifice, we see a very clear picture of what both headship and submission look like through Jesus Christ. Male headship looks like self sacrificial, benevolent leadership that looks to the needs of others more than its own. And female submission, a wife's submission, looks like reverent respect and affirmation and support for leadership, just as Jesus was obedient to the will of the Father in all things. That's the Ephesians 5 model And that, as we talk about womanhood, is what a godly wife is committed to. Mature femininity affirms and supports the leadership of her own husband. Now, when we talk about submission, submission is a willingness. It's not being forced into something, but it's a willingly, submission is willingly coming under the authority by your own will. It's willingly coming under the authority of someone else. And if you think about it, every true Christian is a submissive person. Every true Christian, both men and women. If you claim that you're not a submissive person, I, I, I humbly question your faith. Because to be a Christian, you have to submit to Christ. In all things, men and women. To be a Christian means to submit to the governing authorities around us. Uh, we, we submit to an eldership, both men and women. So biblical submission coming under the authority of another, it, it's, it's not this dirty word that implies domination and inferiority. It's a natural part of human life that produces functionality and order and joy for all parties involved. And the same is true in the home. So, how are we to understand a wife's responsibility to willingly submit to the leadership of her husband? That's the question. That's the question we want to explore. Now, honestly, it's, it's very difficult. I, I thought about, you know, when I was uh, studying for this, thought about you know, giving examples and illustrations and everything of what this looks like, but, but uh, the more I thought about it the more I prayed about it, uh, it's very difficult uh, to give, I believe, examples and illustrations of what this looks like uh, specifically in practice uh, because the specifics regarding the leadership of a husband and the submission of a wife don't always look the same. From relationship to relationship, so examples can oftentimes be very uh, easily stretched and misapplied. So, uh, but but I will give you uh, what I think is is biblical wisdom and uh, something that I think think is very sound and helpful, and that is this: you submit to your husband when you joyfully affirm and support and encourage his godly initiatives. You submit to your husband. What submission looks like is a joyful affirmation and support and encouragement of the husband's leadership, of his godly initiatives. Leadership, what that means generally, leadership means taking the initiative in something. It means leadership, it means being the one who puts things into motion, who gets things going. And this is very much so a part of the benevolent leadership role that God has given to men. The head of the household takes initiative in setting the moral standards for the family. Uh, He is to take initiative in financial responsibility. Responsibility, a part of headship. He is to take initiative in the discipline of the children. He is to set into motion, take initiative in the spirituality of the family, in family devotional, setting patterns for church involvement, setting patterns in family giving. That's what it means to be a leader. It doesn't mean doing it all by yourself. That's not male headship or, or, or doing these things without consulting your wife and partnering with her and her valuable wisdom, but it means, leadership means taking initiative. It means being the one who gets things going. And submission to leadership, what that looks like, is joyfully respecting and supporting those initiatives that the husband makes. Now, don't get me wrong. I know this is very easy to misunderstand, and a lot needs to be said here in a very short amount of time. That doesn't mean that you follow your husband blindly. That doesn't mean that you leave your brain at the door, and you never express your ideas and your opinions about the way you think things should go. Doesn't mean that's not what submission means at all. But at the same time, it is an attitude of reverence. It's an attitude of respect for his leadership and a disposition that says, overall, I trust you to do what's best. However, I do want to address this as we're talking about this subject because this is a common problem, I believe, for wives in regards to submission. A common problem that I've, I've heard most often is that the husband won't take the initiative. He won't step up and be a a leader and lead their families, but leaves that responsibility overall to the wife. Uh, I've, I've heard many wives say, I want to submit to my husband. I want to follow this biblical pattern and this biblical model, but he just won't lead. He won't take initiative. How in the world can I submit to someone who doesn't lead? Now, let me speak to husbands. That's why, husbands, it's so very important, so very important for us to see these principles and to embrace this responsibility of leadership. Because if you don't What you're doing is you're setting your wife up for extreme frustrations and difficulties in fulfilling her role. And wives, if, if, I'll say this, I don't have a lot of time, but if, if, if you are in this situation, first of all, pray. Pray that God would mold your husband into the godly leader he needs to be. Don't, don't try to take his place And taking initiatives, but encourage him and support him in his efforts to do so, and and seek godly counsel, seek wisdom. I believe that's so very important uh, when when we attempt to model this kind of godly dynamic that we see within Scripture. That's what Christian community is for, is to bear one another's burdens uh, in, in this way, to help one another in this way. So if you are in this situation, seek godly counsel from someone who's been in your shoes and who's someone who can help. And also, when a wife willingly embraces this submissive role, it's not a sign of weakness. It's not a show of how inferior and weak she is, but rather, it's a show of strength. It's a show of courage when a wife willingly submits in this way to her husband. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 5-6, through 6, For in the same way, the holy women who hoped in God long ago adorned themselves by being subject to their husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham, calling in, Lord, you become her children when you do what is good and have no fear in doing so. Sarah showed how strong and courageous she was when she embraced this godly model. And submitted to Abraham, and you become her children when you do the same. Now let's transition and look at another idea. Perseverant nurture, or persistent nurture, rather. Turn with me to the book of Titus, Titus chapter two. Titus chapter two verses one through five. Verse one says, "But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine, sound doctrine. Now, let's pause right there for a moment uh, because the words sound doctrine point to something very significant. Uh, The the idea here behind the original Greek words rendered sound doctrine goes something like this, healthy teaching. Sound doctrine is healthy teaching. It's, It's teaching that produces spiritual health. It produces well-being, it produces functionality, it produces joy. Notice with me how uh, the Greek word rendered sound is used elsewhere within the New Testament. Luke chapter 7, verse 10, it says, And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Same word that's rendered sound in Titus chapter 2. Likewise, in Luke chapter 15, verse 27 it says, and he said to him, your brother, in the parable of the prodigal son, and your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Same word rendered sound in Titus chapter 2. Received him back healthy, back well. And then lastly, third John verse 2. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health. Same word rendered sound in Titus chapter 2 health. So sound doctrine, as we attempt to understand what that means, it has to do with health. It refers to the kind of spiritual instruction that's directly related to how we live our lives. And the idea is that when our lives come into conformity with sound doctrine, with healthy teaching, then what does it produce? It produces functionality. It produces satisfaction. It produces a God-honoring life that's marked by joy in Jesus Christ. Now, notice with me how Paul specifically addresses, defines, sound doctrine in the rest of the passage in Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified. is sound doctrine. It's healthy teaching. It's the kind of spiritual instruction that brings about God's intended plan for human life, a plan that desires functionality and human flourishing. And it's very interesting, I believe, that it's specifically referring to what we're talking about in this series, sound doctrine. Notice with me again, as I read before, the kind of healthy teaching that older women are to instruct younger women in. The text says to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled, to be pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. That's sound doctrine. That's healthy teaching that produces life and functionality and satisfaction, the text claims. Now, what does all that mean? What does that stuff mean, and how are we to take that and apply that today within our 21st century context? The principle, I believe, that this passage and others are teaching us about womanhood, as we attempt to understand it, is this, that a woman's primary responsibility and high calling from Jesus Christ is to the care and nurturing of her home when she sees it as her responsibility to tend to the domestic needs of the home, to care and nurture her children and love and support the leadership of her husband and does those things with persistence, with perseverance, with all of her might, then she's embracing sound doctrine or healthy teaching. She's living in a way that is healthy and that produces functionality for both her and her home. Now, don't get me wrong. Again, this is easy to misunderstand. Uh, That doesn't mean that a woman can't work outside the home. I did a, a, a further look at that a couple Sunday nights ago, and if you wish to see that discussion, you can go look at it on our YouTube channel. But I don't believe that that principle means that a woman can't work outside the home, but it does mean that a godly woman, as we, as we, as we see womanhood in all of its glory and the roles that God has created for both men and women, a godly woman sees her primary responsibility and high calling not to a career, but to the home. When, 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 uh, er, uh one, one woman, I, I heard this, uh, actually F.H. told me this uh, as we were, we were discussing and talking about what needed to be said and, and what didn't. Uh, one, one, uh, one woman was asked one time what she did for a living, uh, and, and F.H. said that she, she said, I'm a domestic engineer on a 20-year project that's going to affect generations to come. Now, that sounds like a pretty big deal, doesn't it? (laughs) A 20-year project that's going to affect generations to come. That is the high calling that Jesus Christ has given to our precious and valuable mothers. Also, notice with me the latter half of verse 5. And this is very important, too. It says that the Word of God may not be reviled. Teach sound doctrine. Teach these things so that, in order that, the word of God may not be reviled. The Bible claims here that this vision of womanhood, it's, it's not only healthy, it not only produces functionality, the claim of Scripture, but it's like a weapon. It's like a weapon that strikes at the very heart of immorality. Here's the reasoning within the text. An immoral culture, as we see within Titus chapter 2, an immoral culture sees, they see the word of God, the blessed words of God as truly transformative in one's life and truly life-giving and functional when they see a godly woman giving herself with, with persistence and perseverance to her home, when they see her sacrificing to meet the domestic needs of her family, when they see her as a model of self-control, a model of purity, when they see her forsaking, self-focused pursuits and tending to the needs of her children and husband more more than her own, the reasoning goes when those on the outside see that kind of attitude, that kind of disposition, that kind of courage and strength from a godly woman, those on the outside look at that and they say, wow, look at the beautiful kind of life that the Word of God produces. However, at the same time, when a woman does not model these kinds of traits, loving her husband and children and kind, being kind and pure to those, she's, to those she meets, being a diligent worker in the home, then the Word of God, as the text said, is reviled. It's dishonored. It's blasphemed. That means that those around her look at her life and conclude the opposite, what I just said. They conclude, wow, the Word of God produces nothing special, nothing that I'm not accustomed to, nothing life-giving. Why in the world would I want to embrace it? Mature femininity, in all of its beauty and glory, it places primary responsibility on the care and the nurturing of the home. Now, with that being said, I know Many people within our world today would boo very loudly over, over that, over what I just said. Uh, and it's because we've been taught uh, that a woman can't find value and worth in that way, in the way that I've described. But brothers and sisters, that simply is not true. That is not true. A woman's worth is wrapped up in her identity with Jesus Christ, not in what she accomplishes outside the home, and it shines brightly for all to see when she embraces these beautiful God ordained roles that we see within Scripture. Now, as we close, we've only got a few minutes left. The last last um, idea concerning womanhood: fearless purity. Uh, mature femininity is committed to fearlessly reflecting the glory of God in the way she speaks, acts, and embraces her roles. Uh, now, I have to admit, I, I really struggled uh, with, this, with this last point uh, in, in developing this and attempting to understand it. I know that it's true, uh, and it's worth highlighting because it's a major aspect of womanhood, but it's very difficult to communicate with words. FH and I were talking about this a couple days ago. Uh, The way that the Bible speaks, you look at all the biblical passages concerning womanhood, not not fallen womanhood or cultural stereotypes, uh, but God's original design as revealed in Scripture. The way that the Bible speaks about womanhood, it causes one to look upon it with a spirit of awe and wonder in a way that's unique from manhood. Uh, The Song of Solomon 6.10 said, Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? A woman, of course. There's just something there's just something, and I, and I can't, I, I feel inadequate to, to say this. It's hard to communicate it with words, but there's just something about mature femininity that when you see it, you can't help but say, wow, God is awesome. Women have the capability of harnessing this unique kind of pure feminine strength, which Peter says is so very precious in the sight of God Almighty and makes His glory shine brighter than the sun. So, um, and all, with all of that in view, I want to read again, as Daniel read for us a moment ago, Pro- Proverbs chapter 31 and close out our discussion of this this morning because she is, I believe, the embodiment of a fear- fearlessly pure woman, reflects the glory of God in all that she does. Verse 10 of 31, an excellent wife who can find, she is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar She rises while it's yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hands to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes sashes, sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Both manhood and womanhood are uniquely created by God, a creative God who has the best interests of His creatures at heart. And when placed side by side in the context of the home, they complement one another in a way that radiates the glory of God and makes it shine immensely bright. So let's, let's all of us be a people who recover that vision, who see that vision and all of its beauty and glory, who model it in our lives and promote it to our children and the world around us so that the glory of God may shine through us as well. This morning, if you're subject to the invitation, we encourage you uh, to come forward uh, today. If you need prayers, if there's something going on in your life uh, that that you would like to make known that we can help you with, that we can... um, Uh, we can practice the biblical principle of bearing one another's burdens, we invite you to come forward this morning. Also, if uh, you don't know Jesus Christ, there's no better time to embrace Him than right now. You have an opportunity to believe on Him, to repent of your sins, and come forward and confess your faith in Him, and be immersed in, in the waters of baptism, contacting the blood of Jesus Christ, and beginning a relationship with the Lord that will extend into eternity. This morning, if you have any need, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing.